Good morning. You are listening to our worship from March the 6th, 2022. The opening little bit of our worship was missing, but that's okay. I can just record this and attach it to the front. So I pray that your week has gone well and that you find this worship speaks to your soul and you find God's blessing around every corner. Uh, We have two readings today, both from Luke as we continue this journey with him. The first one comes from uh, chapter 11, often referred to as the six woes. Lovely title, I know. So if you wanted to follow along, this is, uh, starts on page 736 in your pew Bibles. Um, yeah, uh, 37 through 52. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash his hands before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees! Because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and uh, all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers too did. They killed the prophets and you build the tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all those prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who, um, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourself have not entered, and you have hindered those from entering. Our other reading, which is a little more positive, comes from chapter 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was very wealthy. He wanted to see who this Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. 
So he, climbed, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began muttering, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Blessed is the word. Amen. So, visiting my parents last fall, it was really weird. I'm sure many of you have experienced this as you've gotten older and have moved out of your parents' homes and your parents moved out of their homes. You return back just before that and it doesn't look right. I mean, my parents were there for 30 years. And for those 30 years, you used to things looking generally a certain way. Yeah, there have been updates. But now it was emptying out. The bookshelves were empty. Some of them were gone. Either off to the burn pile on the other side of the lake or stacked away ready to get packed. My parents have never been big on decoration. Like in our house, we never just had art hanging of any kind. Yeah. The only things that were up were pictures of family and things that people gave to us that my parents felt that they should have up on the walls. That was just the way we were. My, my grandma is a big knick-knack person. Every square inch in her house tended to be covered with some piece of memory or antique or whatnot, and my mom just went whole hog the opposite direction. She did not want to have to dust around things which I get. I don't like dusting around things either. That's why Lauren does it. <laughs> anyway. So it was weird to see what little was on the walls was gone, to see that space more bare. But there was one thing that was still there, just inside the door, our table. Now, my, my parents' house, about the first third of it was one giant room. It was our dining room, our living room, and what we called the telephone room. We we're very original in naming things. The telephone room was a little section that used to be the original office. They had taken a wall off, so it became part of the living room, and it had the telephone. We called it the telephone room. And then their living room there, and then right as soon as you entered the steps, I mean, entered the house, there was an area to take your shoes off, and then you were at the dining room table. It wasn't the first dining room table we had ever had, but it's the one I remember. The one that was there before my brother chased Mike the cat underneath the grandfather clock. Again, we're very original in naming. It had nothing to do with you, Mike. I guess mom knew who you were, but dad named the cat Mike. Also, Mike was a girl. We were terrible at getting the right name with the right gender cat. We had three cats, Mike, who was a girl, Nick, who was a boy, and Neil, who was also a girl. 
terrible. Anyway, Mike went under and my brother tried to go after and it knocked the grandfather clock into the table. Grandfather clock physically looks great. Hardly any damage. Mechanism doesn't work. Dining room table, destroyed. Like just a quarter of it knocked right off. So we replaced it with this big solid table. And that was about two or three years after we came to camp. So we, we had that table for most of 27 some years. Originally, my brother and I always sat at the ends, and then dad had to tell us we weren't allowed anymore because we always put our feet on the, uh, the, on the foot of the legs, and eventually we wore it down. So it just went like this. So we had to switch chairs, but it was always a spot for us there every day. As long as we weren't cooking up at the lodge every day between five and six, mom told us it's time for dinner. And we all came and we sat around that table. I was there for 13 years. 13 years I sat around that table with my family every night. It was sacred time. And it was before cell phones were commonly held. And it was well before cell phones could even be used at camp. I mean, smartphones didn't come out until we were, what, graduating college, basically, is when the first iPhone came out. Yeah, sure, the phone rang once in a while. Dad usually answered it when it was at dinner, because Dad had the big, deep voice, and people listened to him better than they listened to my mom, which, if they knew my parents, they would know that they actually got to be careful of my mom more than him. But Dad would answer it and go, you know, if it wasn't something you could tell him right away, He'd just be like, I'm having dinner with my family now. You know, you can, you can call back tomorrow after 9 o'clock when the office is open. That was our sacred time. Now, that did lead to my question to my parents. You are taking the table, right? Yes, we're taking the table. The table's in California. So there will be a time where eventually we make it out to California where I will sit at that table again. And I know I'll sit at that table because there will be a space there for me. Just as there was a space at my grandma Wanger's table that my dad always had. Just as there's a space at my grandma Heiser's that my mom always had. Just as I know, Lauren, you have a space at your mom and dad's table and so forth and so on back through history. We all have those special places. Whether that table is one you can actually sit at today or one that will just live in your memory. My grandma Heiser's table was actually a ping pong table. It was the only one that was big enough to fit all of us. It's a special and sacred place inviting someone into our home to join us at that, fem that family space. Now, we've been doing this since, well, humans started living together, I'm sure. I mean, we all gathered to eat. We're pretty sure that as far back as people have been gathering, they've been eating, right? And they've been probably eating at the gatherings. I mean, there's no better way to get a bunch of brethren together than to tell them there's food downstairs. I'll tell you, yesterday at that meeting, because it was hitting the mid-afternoon, the mid and we could, I mean, the mid-morning, we could smell that lunch cooking. Whew. 
I'm starting to feel my belly grumble. Anyway, we've been doing this forever. And it's always been a thing, you know, carefully inviting those in. And that's what makes this, this story about Jesus so awkward. I, so Jesus grows up in Galilee. We know that he grew up in the Pharisee movement. Everybody in Galilee was a Pharisee. Whether he used that title or not, that's how others saw him. And so this guy who's living in some random town, we don't know where it is, hears that this rabbi who has this big following is come down from Galilee. I mean, how often have they done that? I know we have people at this church who, when we have had special speakers, like, say, Anna Mao, come in here and talk, they have invited her to come sit at their table, right? You have might have done that in your own life with some other person, some person you admire, some person you want to connect with better. You invite them to come sit at your table. And he hears about this, this rabbi coming from Galilee and says, oh, great, a pharisaical rabbi. I want to invite him to come sit with me. And so he comes in and he sits. Well, in those days, they didn't sit around the table. They reclined around a lot of little tables. Not a big difference, really. Jesus reclines, and they notice that he didn't wash his hands. Now, I'm a four, I have a four-year-old. I know what it's like to have the argument about not washing your hands. It just happened this last week. She refused to wash her hands so that she could come back and sit at the table that I want her to have a good memory about. We'll keep working at that. Half an hour she spent telling us she wouldn't wash her hands. She eventually washed her hands because she really wanted those uh, sunflower seeds. But it has absolutely nothing to do with germ theory. That's one of those modern reading things that we look at and we place it in the scriptures. It had nothing to do with germs. Jesus wasn't refusing to wash his hands because he needed to get rid of germs, which I would get. I mean, come on, Jesus, you've been walking around, probably touching people who needed healed, probably touching animals as you walk down the street in the dirt and the dust. You should wash your hands. I mean, even if, you know, Jesus knew he was the Messiah, and my guess is he couldn't give you the flu or anything, but no one else kind of knew exactly how all that worked. I would like Jesus to wash his hands, please, if I didn't know that he was literally the son of God and God incarnate. But it had nothing to do with that. After all, germ theory didn't appear until, what was it, late 1800s, when a guy realized that maybe medical students shouldn't be doing um, studies on cadavers in the morning and delivering babies in the afternoon, and maybe that was why the women were getting fevers. That's seriously how they figured it out. And you know what? It took decades before the medical community washed their hands. It took decades more till we all washed our hands. No. It has nothing to do with that. It has all to do with purity or cleanliness. This goes back to Leviticus. After, always, whenever you look at Jesus, look at the Old Testament, see what they're talking about. So Leviticus is this weird little book. It exists in one specific space at Mount Sinai. You know, Exodus, they spend the whole time trying to get to Mount Sinai, and then they, they make covenant with God. And then 
excuse me, in Numbers, they leave Sinai and that's the trip. But Leviticus exists right when they're waiting at the bottom of the mountain as God's giving them new commands because their trip is taking on a new passenger, God. And God is intense. You know, we, we, that's a bit of a joke as I think about it because he was in the tabernacle, which was a tent. No, okay. Thank you, I got one chuckle. My wife's giving me the sarcastic smile. That's a real smile. Okay. But God is intense. You know, God is everywhere. But when you concentrate God into one area, as God was to do on, the, on, the, on his throne, which we call the Ark of the Covenant, as God was to do there, that was too much for any regular human to come close to. Um, have any of you here ever worked in a restaurant? Any, any, anyone other than me? I see a couple hands. Okay, if you worked in a restaurant and it had a soda fountain, you'll know this, and probably the rest of you know this, there's not like a whole bunch of bottles of like Coke in the back. Instead, you get a big box. It weighs a massive amount. I mean, it's like 36 pounds. It's not massive, but when you're unloading the truck, you get tired of unloading Coke. It's concentrated. It's really thick syrup with lots of sugar and lots of flavor in it. And then it gets hooked up to a machine that adds in the carbonation and the water all right there at the end product. So when you push it in, all three come together and you get soda. Soda is perfectly palatable if you like soda. However, syrup is not. It's crazy strong. Like, not only is it intensely sweet, but, I mean, it, imagine, you know, the taste of Coke, the taste of root beer, taste of orange crush without being mixed into anything. You will not be able to taste for the rest of the day. It just knocks out everything in your mouth. I tried once, it's not good. By the way, Diet Coke weighs 11 pounds less than regular Coke, and that's all sugar. Crazy. <laughs> Apparently I tickled her funny bone specifically with that comment. Anyway, it's like that. Once you put God in a concentrated form, it's impossible for humans to get that close to. Not without special protection. A kind of armor, if you will. And that was what the book of Leviticus is all about. How do you live with God in the center of your community? A literal community that is gathered around a central point that is God. Now, God's throne, which is the Ark of the Covenant, sits within a sectioned-off area within the tabernacle, which sits in a sectioned-off area that has... So there's layers of protection in terms of how close you could get. And then if you wanted to go within those areas, you had to be protected. And you did that by remaining clean or pure. By being unpure or unclean, you invited that to be burnt out of you by getting too close to God. And that would usually burn the rest of you as well. That's what happens to Aaron's two eldest sons, high priest Aaron. His sons use impure fire and get too close to God and then they're burned up. It's not a good thing. Now, being unclean isn't a bad thing either. It's not a sinful thing. It's no one's fault 
typically, that they become unclean. If you become unclean, I mean, come on. You, you could be unclean because you touched a dead body. You become unclean because you've got a rash on your skin. There's lots of reasons to become unclean that is just part of your everyday work or just because your body did something weird. And so you went through a cleansing plot process in order to become clean enough to approach God again. And so in Leviticus 15, he lays out, God lays out a series of ways to clean yourself so that you can approach God. And one of them is to rinse your hands in water. It's a symbolic action of rinsing away the unclean, the unpure off of your body so that you are clean. Now, in 15, it's only really about if you come into certain human bodily fluids. Not exactly the most pleasant section of the, of the Leviticus to read, but that's what it's about. That's where this process comes from. And it was only meant to be used then. But the Pharisees have become very, very concerned about staying clean and pure all the time. So they've taken a lot of these practices and they made them everyday practices. So they would do things like rinse their hands. Because you know what? Maybe you bumped into somebody out on the street. Maybe you bumped into them and they were unpure. Or perhaps, you know, impurity could be passed by touching an object. So, you know, I, I touched this book and I was impure and I handed it to Bernita. Now Bernita is impure because she touched the book as well. Sorry, Bernita. So you need to wash your hands. The flu's not bad right now, but you'd probably want to wash your hands anyway. <laughs> That's what they were all concerned about. Jesus, Jesus actually isn't upset that they're worrying about cleansliness. He's not upset about that at all. He's upset because that's all they're concerned about. That's what he does. He, he gives us these woes. He, as I said, the section's called the six woes. And the first three are towards the Pharisees, and the last three are towards a group called the scribes. And we're going to come back to them. I just want to have this so I can reference the words better. There we go. And so he compares it to dishes. You know, we make a lot of mac and cheese in our house. I imagine anyone who has ever had a kid has made lots of mac and cheese, right? Or grandkids or whatnot feel like that's what they run on. If I make mac and cheese, when I am done with the pot, you know how much wiping I have to do to the outside? Rinse, done. Do you know how much work I have to do to the inside? Yeah, okay, it depends on how long you let it sit between the end of dinner and when you had to wash it, I know that. That's what he was looking at these Pharisees and seeing them doing. Like, look, you're all worried about the cleanliness, how you look, how you you know, how you can approach God. But you're, you're not working on the other half of the scriptures. Because the scriptures are only, Leviticus is only about purity in one section. It's about purity in the middle two sections, on either side of, of the, the high laws that stand in the center of Leviticus. There's a whole lot on the outside, all about how we interact with one another. And you are only worried about the, the purity part. You are not worried about the justice aspect. He knows, he doesn't say, 
Why are you bothering with the purity? Just worry about the justice. He said, you should have done this and that. You should be worried about following God's commands in how you live your life in terms of staying pure. But you also need to be concerned about doing the right thing, about living in a just manner. And then here specifically, he talks about like, and you think that all it takes to make the inside clean is that you're giving away money. That's not the answer either. And he goes on. He has two more woes in here. He says, woe to you because you love the most important seats. Again, it's all about shining up the outside, making yourself look great. You know, I don't know what the nicest seats in a church are, though. I mean, we kind of sit wherever. But, I mean, in a synagogue, you know, the important seats would be those who are sitting up front or those who are sitting, like, up front here or up front there, the ones in the most important seats. In the marketplace, the elders of the community were the ones that people went to for justice, for the dispensing of justice, for the witnessing of contracts. All you're worried about is making sure you got one of those seats so that people see you sitting there. But most, most disturbing is this last one. You owe to you, you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. This goes back to Leviticus 21. You, you, as a good Jew, you would work hard to remain generally clean. As a priest, I know I've gone over this before, but priests were held to a higher standard. And that involved not even being in the same room as a dead body, let alone touching a dead body. They applied these to themselves. The Pharisees applied these to themselves. They say, we need to be super clean, because mind you, the Pharisee movement is in opposition to the Sadducee movement. The Sadducees are the priests. The Pharisees want to be as good as the priests. If you were walking as a priest and you walked over an unmarked grave, you would become contaminated. You could be burned up by God. Probably wouldn't, but you never know. And the Pharisees argued about these kinds of things, so they applied it to themselves. They who are so worried about living the perfect clean life, they are bringing others into an unclean life. Their, their actions, their, what they say, what they do for others in the community are leading them astray. And you know what? As I said, being unclean is not sinful. But setting up someone else to be unclean is a sinful thing. So you guys are both unclean and sinful by doing these things. Now when we say the word Pharisee in here, mind you, Almost everyone's a Pharisee. Um, every, every Jew that Jesus is probably interacting with up until he gets to the area right around Jerusalem will consider themselves a Pharisee. So when we're using Pharisee in here, we're using, use it in the sense of like a church deacon. These are the highly respected members in the community. Well, this Pharisee didn't just invite Jesus, the rabbi, this teacher, who come in and eat with him. He invited his teacher, his local scribe. These are the men who would be in the synagogue, who would be reading the scriptures and teaching people. It says scribe, but you could also apply the word rabbi, other rabbis. And, I mean, 
Now picture this in your mind this way. This man, this teacher, this respected teacher comes into a household. You're sitting there as a pastor or a deacon or something. And he comes in and he starts laying, this, this man starts laying into the host and those who are like him. And the pastor's in there and he gets upset too. Like, I'm, I'm the guy who guides these folks. Why are you attacking? When you attack them, you're attacking me. Okay, the pastors don't get let off the hook either. So Jesus has a whole series of woes for them as well. Um, woe to you for building the tombs. Woe to you for taking away the key. And woe to you for giving people too much and not helping. We've all experienced that. And I'm sorry if I've ever said a whole lot that sounded like it was too much to carry. You can always kick me in the butt later. Not literally, please. I don't carry a wallet, so I don't have any protection back there. Anyway. So these teachers, these scribes, these pastors, for best way to put it in a modern sense, going up every day, telling people how to live, giving them the law, but never telling them how to live in the law. And then it talks about the key, you know, as, as we say again and again and again, there is the law, there's the literal front face of the wall, and there's the justice behind the wall. The law is meant to bring you closer to God. But they're pulling the key out and saying, no, 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 no. Just read the writing on the door. You don't have to worry about going in. You don't have to worry about this justice section. You don't have to worry about trying to live the right way. Just stay clean. Cool beans? Cool beans. Don't go in. And then last, this, this thing about the tombs. We're talking about prophets. Amos, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk. Habakkuk? Good name, hard to say. Who spoke to these problems, these same problems that Jesus is speaking to, that the people are not hearing God's will, that they are not living God's way. Speaking to the same thing. But back then, they were ignored. They were, and sometimes literally killed. But more often than not, they died. And, and they were celebrating them. They were great guys. We're building tombs. Look how great these tombs look. Don't read their stuff. Don't read it. Don't, nope, nope, don't read it. We'll tell you about it. But don't read it. And by the way, I highly recommend Read Minor Prophets. They'll take you a day to read, read a minor prophet a day. You'll get through all 12 in no time at all. Because they are crazy. If you could live like a minor prophet, I will tell you, I think you'll be right in line with Jesus. Because Jesus is very much in line with them. Don't worry about them. Imagine inviting someone like that to your table. Someone who just lays into your way of life. Someone who just lays into everything you think is right. You're probably going to be upset, right? And that's how they reacted. I mean, that's the next verse. The verse I didn't read today. Might as well have read it. But the next verse is something along the lines of, and after that point, they started thinking of ways they could trip him up. Hmm. 
Now, actually, I named this title. I don't know. Have any, have any of you ever seen The Man Who Came to Dinner? No? Man, it's saying something when I've seen the classic movie. Okay, we are actually in a play about it, about a famous, uh, basically an art critic or a theater or a movie critic who, um, you've all probably seen the parodies of this before, but he is invited into someone's home to have a dinner. He hurts himself while leaving, and then he's told that he can't leave the house until he heals up. And of course, out of that, comedy ensues because, well, he, he's looking down. It actually happens in a small fictional town in Ohio, of all places. But he is very much looking down as a man of New York and L.A., of the art community that he thinks these people's lives are terribly boring, so he makes it more fun for himself. Creates lots of chaos. That was a funny version of that, of what it means to bring a chaotic force into your household. And Jesus, in this form, is a chaotic force. And that chaos will continue to rip up and tear up and change the world around him. Now, later, he's going to travel on to Jericho. This is one of the last stories on the road. After this, Jesus will make it to Jerusalem. And when he's there, he's going to encounter Zacchaeus. Now, a reminder, taxes, the way it worked is the Romans said, okay, Jericho, you owe, just throwing out numbers, 1,000 pieces of gold. No, they didn't have someone in there who actually collected that for the Roman government. What they did is they said, we have, you have to collect 1,000 pieces of gold. And you know what? We're going to sell it to Bob. Bob is going to collect the money. Like Bob said, okay, Rome, here's your 1,000 pieces of gold. There you go. And then they said, great job, Bob. Now you're allowed to collect from the people. And so Bob would go around town and say, you know, all of you have to give me money. I have the backing of the Roman government of this. And you have to give me the amount I say. You know what? Bob's got to make a living. He's going to collect 2,000 pieces of gold. That's the way it was legally done. So Zacchaeus wasn't well-liked. I mean, how many of us like our local tax collector anyway, right? I mean, okay, if you have a personal relationship with them, maybe you do. They're not bad people. <laughs> but no one loves the IRS. Sorry, anyone who's watching from the IRS. Keep doing your job. Not your fault. Anyway. So, yeah, Zacchaeus is not well-liked. And he's not well-liked not only because he's the tax collector, but because he's a cheat. You know, yeah, he could have taken in a little bit of extra. I get it. You want to live your life. If that's your job is that you forward the money for the whole town, you got to make a living yourself, right? But he is collecting to the point of excess, that the point that he is now a wealthy man. But here's this guy's coming. We have no idea what's happening in his heart. But for whatever reason, he decides he wants to see this man, Jesus. So he climbs up what's called a sycamore fig. It's this beautiful, gigantic tree. Have you ever seen, um, like, a, one of the, I can't think of what they're called all of a sudden, the great oaks in the south? I can't think of what they're called, living oaks, I think. They're huge. They spread out over, like, a lot of space. 
Sycamore figs are the same way. They spread out over a huge amount of space. Like the trunk might be on that side of the tree, but the branch, a good thick branch, is all the way to the other side of this room easily. And so he climbs up in and he crawls out over the road and he looks down and Jesus looks up at him and says, I'm going to go eat with you. Another time Jesus goes to a dinner, but this one is completely different. The first time he was invited to the table, but he was not invited into anyone's hearts. This time he's not invited to the table. He just shows up but he is invited into Zacchaeus's heart. He's invited into Zacchaeus's way of life. I don't really have much else to say about Zacchaeus. There really isn't much else to say about him, except when you put it against this other dinner. These people who thought they were doing everything right, they thought they were living the right lives and refused to go any further. And this man who is living as a social pariah, as someone who is breaking the laws of Moses, someone who is at the edge. He's rich, but he's at the edge of society. And he's the one who has the change of heart. He's the one who makes the transformation. And not only does he fulfill the law, that, that's what the whole four times thing is, that's a fulfillment of the law. If you were to defraud someone, you gave them back four times what you defrauded them of. Not only that, he's going to give half of all of his other possessions away to the poor. I can tell you which table I would rather have been sitting at. We all have our own tables. We also have a an allegorical table, one in our heart, one that we invite people to come sit at. And we always have to wonder, are we being more this group or that group? Are we welcoming Jesus to the table or not? We have one more table in this story, and it's right behind me. We call it an altar. That's not actually what this is. This is not an altar. Altars have one specific purpose. An altar is where you put a sacrifice on to God. We do not make sacrifices in our faith. In a Roman Catholic church, it's still technically an altar. The reason it's an altar is because they believe that the, the bread and the cup are literally, literally the, bread, the blood and flesh of God. We don't believe that. This is called the Lord's table or the table of communion. I, I grew up thinking it was the, called the, the remembrance table because mine had written across the front of it, you know, do this in remembrance of me. Lord's table is a lot easier to say, which is why we say altar, because altar is even easier to say. And technically, the table should actually be right there, because I am not a priest. We no longer have to live by the same rules that the Levitical people did, because we don't have to worry about whether we are being clean or unclean, because we have been cleansed by the blood. We have been sanctified and freed from that. We don't have to worry about that. Now, please wash your hands. But that has everything to do with germ theory and nothing to do with cleanliness. That sounded off. But you know what I mean, right? Thank you. <laughs> I got Christine talking back there. Good day. Oh, is that Anthony? <laughs> 
Anthony, I don't think I've ever heard you talk in worship. Awesome. Keep bringing them, Gene. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to throw it off. It didn't have anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. We are clean. We don't have to worry about that. Where was I going now? <laughs> Man, I was really thrown off. I got all excited for my yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you, yeah so we no longer have to worry about purity. I am not a priest. I am a pastor. And in our faith, we do not call priests. I am the same as everyone else. The only difference is you all expect me to talk to you once a week. Sometimes that goes better than other weeks. You'll have to let me know. You're allowed to criticize me. I am, not, I am the same as everyone else. We have recognized that we do not need someone who stands between us and God. We do not need priests. We do not need to be clean because we have already been purified. We don't have to worry about that. We are allowed to get close. Though if you come in contact with the Ark of the Covenant, don't touch it. Because I don't know if it's going to go all Indiana Jones on you or not. No, we are invited to come directly to the table. We are invited to come sit at it. Because you know what? Yes, you have a family table, whether that's the table you sit at every night right now, whether that's a table that you remember from your past, whether it exists still to this day or not. There is another table yet, and it's the Lord's table. And there's a spot for you at it. You have the choice, though. You can be like those people, those Pharisees that Jesus first met, those Pharisees and those scribes, and be put off by what Jesus tells you at the table. Or you can come like Zacchaeus and accept and repent and change and have a seat. You are welcome to this table. Just like you're welcome to mom and dad's. You are welcome to come and sit at Jesus' table. To come and banquet. To feast. To sing. To celebrate. You're all welcome to that table. Come. Feels odd without that. I kind of almost wish I saved this one for one more week, but I have something I want to hit next week because we're going to be eating next week following worship. But you are all welcome at that table. That is what the Lord's Supper is. It's his table, and we are, can come and sit and worship and be part of that family. You have the choice whether you accept that invitation and whether you accept what you're called to but you're always welcome, no matter what. Amen.